the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this edition. You can follow us at danproftshow.com, where you get podcasts of the program, as well as you can get those podcasts on Spotify and iTunes. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, including, including importantly, Parler. Yesterday in Michigan, they had a legislative hearing, much like the legislative hearings that have transpired in Arizona and Pennsylvania over the last week. One of the uh, witnesses that was presented to offer testimony was Melissa Carone. She is a freelance IT worker who was retained through a staffing firm by Dominion Voting Systems. Uh, here's uh, what she said that she saw at the center in which uh, she worked for 27 hours, beginning with the processing of ballots that came in. So the tabulating machines, when a ballot jams, it puts up an error. It'll say discard or recount. So when it puts up that error, the correct way to go about it is to discard the whole batch Take the ones that have already been tabulated, put them back into a pile, put the one that jammed on top, and then discard the whole thing, and then rescan them. They were not discarding. So they were just rescanning, 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 counting ballots eight to ten times, just recounting them. They had absolutely no idea what they were doing. She also recounted this rather cryptic conversation she had with a man named Samuel, who was a Dominion employee, she says, about something they termed the Chicago warehouse. And she presented or recounted this conversation in the context of suggesting that um, they said, Dominion employees, they had some big data loss, but without more specifics than that, but nonetheless, something that merits further inquiry he said i was at the warehouse i said where's this warehouse and he, i said is it an amazon warehouse i don't know what what kind of warehouse is that right and he said we call it the chicago warehouse and i said okay so it's in chicago because they're from colorado i said so it's in chicago and he said no melissa it's in detroit we call it the chicago warehouse i said okay and i just walked away but it there was something very secretive that he was doing there was also a data, they said a big data loss right before they sent Samuel to this warehouse. And was that? That was a where when Samuel went to the warehouse, um, that was approximately, it was in the afternoon. I, I believe it was around two or three. Is that in the third or the fourth? The third. Okay, so that was uh, two or three in the afternoon on election day. She There's this reference to data loss and there wasn't much more context provided to that assertion. And then uh, two or three or four in the morning, one of the other witnesses, a gentleman named Michael Dubio, testified to ballots being dollied in and counted and that uh, he and others present, including the legal representative of the Trump campaign, 
found this to be a bit curious. Uh, this is an uh, interchange between Mr. Dubio and a Republican state senator named Peter Lucido, and then a follow-up question to his testimony by a state senator named Sylvia Santana, who's a Democrat. Listen. What time of the morning was it when you saw this come in, or what time of the evening was it? Three-ish, four in that window. In the afternoon? No, no, no. I was there from... Three or four in the morning. I was there at 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. They yeah. were in mail uh, sleeves, you said? Mm-hmm. Did anybody have any earmarkings of who they were carrying these ballots? Were they carrying them? Were they on a dolly? Yeah, they were on a dolly. Yeah, they were on a dolly. Do I know who they were? Absolutely not. But there were people that were doing that. Senator Santana. Was there any particular reason you didn't ask for a supervisor to question, you know, the ballots coming in on a dolly? Or... Well, I didn't figure I needed to because the lead counsel that was supposed to be there was taking tally, and I was there standing right next to him. So I figured he was kind of the person that was overseeing the whole night. But that's what we were told. So we were, we were talking directly about why are these coming in. We all thought it was interesting that these ballots were coming in so late. What was his response, sir? We were taking count, and we were um, his exact response I couldn't recall. But we were definitely perplexed that these were coming in so late, as well as they were being put out to be counted. Uh, Melissa Carone also testified that she did call the FBI on November 5th and had a 40-minute conversation with some person at FBI about what she testified to at yesterday's hearing to no particular effect. Additionally, you had Chris Shornick, who was a volunteer with Guard the Vote, who testified that he went through, he and other volunteers with this Guard the Vote organization, went through 30,000 of the 172,000 absentee ballots in the city of Detroit and found a fraudulence rate of about 9%. About uh, 229 people who voted who were deceased, about 2,660 voted who he suggests had invalid addresses, vacant lots, or burned down houses. Um, So that's a small percentage of a small percentage of the overall votes cast in Michigan. But, I mean, if you start to extrapolate that spoilage rate, if you will, over bigger universes, it starts to be material. Per our discussion with uh, Richard Epstein the other day, the idea of whether or not you need to reach the level of the actual discrepancy in the vote totals between the two candidates, or you just have to present something that is substantial in terms of proof of fraud in order to generate further inquiry, get to discovery, get past a motion to dismiss it seems to me that there's a strong argument to be made if if there is evidence of substantial fraud, then that would prompt more inquiry. And that perhaps is an argument that the Trump legal team can make, not just in Michigan, but uh, some of the other states in question with specific, again here, specific batches of ballots and specific allegations about why those ballots should or should not be counted because it goes both ways here as it did with this guard, the vote organization that said there were some of these ballots like those I just described that should not have been counted. And then there were other ballots that should have been counted. For more on all of this and sort of the uh, overall assessment of the legal theories being advanced by the Trump legal team and I guess non-Trump legal team actors like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood in Georgia, pleased to be joined again by our friend Andy McCarthy. He is former federal prosecutor, chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan once upon a time. 
He is uh, now contributing editor to National Review and, of course, the best-selling author of the book Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you. So um, there's so much to unpack, but one of the uh, criticisms that has been leveled against uh, the Trump campaign, including by National Review, is the suggestion that effectively trying to get through state legislatures what they can't get through the courts is illegitimate. And I just wonder what you think about that argument, because, I mean, these state legislators, Republicans in in the three states that have held hearings, I mean, they're independently elected in their communities, and they're taking it on their own initiative to have these hearings, to take testimony, to ask questions, to try to get answers for a public, at least a portion of the public that wants answers. What's wrong with that? I think you're talking apples and oranges, Dan. At National Review, we completely support inquiring into what happened here. Uh, Whether it changes the outcome of this election or not, I think it's vitally important for future elections because, you know, when you have mass mail-in voting like you did in this election under the auspices of, uh, you know, reacting to the coronavirus crisis, it's a great invitation to fraud. And it's very clear that even if the result of this election is not reversed, a lot of tightening up needs to be done. I, you know, personally, I'd like to see mass mail-in voting gotten rid of entirely. I don't think that's going to happen, but at least we could tighten up a lot of the procedures here. So I don't think anybody has an objection. In fact, I think what's happening in Michigan now is by leaps and bounds preferable to, for example, the exhibition that went on in Pennsylvania, which was not a legislative hearing or a court hearing. It was basically a rally in a hotel ballroom where they called some witnesses, but there was no one under oath and no cross-examination. I think this is much preferable. What what we're saying at National Review, and I've made this argument myself, not just uh, corporately, to ask the state legislators to change the result of the election and appoint the Trump slates in states where Biden appears to have won the election would be not only a violation of the the concept that you've given the right to vote to the public, but it, it also overlooks a big step, which is that every one of these states has a lot of law enacted that gives the vote to the public and that puts executive branch officials in the states in charge of the way that elections get managed. They can't just ignore that law. They can't just say, you know, on second thought, we're, we're not going to go along with this election. We're just going to name the Trump slate of electors. I, what we're saying is I don't think legally they can do that. And factually, politically, if they tried to do it, it would be a catastrophe. I do appreciate uh, the uh substance of the argument you laid out, Andy, and I want to uh, provide some gentle pushback on it. Uh, We'll do that and stick on this topic of Trump's legal challenges with former federal prosecutor and contributing editor to National Review, Andy McCarthy, right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're joined by National Review contributing editor, former federal prosecutor Andy McCarthy, and we're talking about Trump's legal battles. And I wanted to uh, prompt you with a couple of questions in response to the argument you laid out about uh, uh, the Trump gambit through state legislative bodies. Uh, one is, is this just a Machiavellian play to try to get uh, a hearing in court that they're otherwise struggling to get? Because obviously, if that were to happen, say Michigan, the Michigan state legislature did just that, uh, then obviously the Biden campaign's legal team is not just going to sit by and let those electors be uh, 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 slated for Trump on December 14th. There would be litigation. Now you're in a court of law and potentially you get to the discovery phase that you're trying to get to with respect to some of these fraud allegations. That's number one. And then secondly, you know, I think you have a lot of Trump supporters say, well, um, boy, the rule of law, um, what I remember uh, when we used to have the rule of law in this country. And when you have uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court do things by judicial fiat that are reserved to the legislature and other such instances of overreach in many directions, um, maybe I'm not so interested in hearing about, uh, your perspective on why we should follow the rule of law and they do not have to. Yeah, well, that's a big problem. I'm not disagreeing with you. I I think that I started saying, Dan, I think it was in the middle of October, maybe a little bit earlier than that, that it was irresponsible for the Supreme Court not to take that case in Pennsylvania where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court rewrote the law. And I, I made that argument for precisely the reason that you're articulating. It, we have to give the public a sense that there is a rule of law and that it gets enforced against everybody and that it's even handed. And I think that, you know, they really drop down on the job as far as that goes. But here's the problem. I don't know that there's what exactly you do about this problem. You know, we always think about legal issues in a vacuum because that's the only way you can analyze them. They're very complex sometimes. And if you let too many other, you know, moving balls or moving pieces overcomplicate things, then then they're hard to get a grasp on. But in real life, legal issues don't come up in a vacuum. They come up against competing considerations. And one of the competing considerations in this country is that you have to have, and this is the way our law is structured, you have to have a president who's up and running and ready to go on January 20th, whether it's the incumbent president or the next president. As a result, for a couple of weeks after Election Day, I think it's fair enough to say that we have to do everything we can do to make sure that we got the result as right as it can be. But the way the law turns the page uh, once we get to uh, you know December and beyond is that there's a very short time window for any of this stuff because it's more important to the country that we have a president up and running and ready to go on January 20th. So on December 8th, we're going to hit the federal safe harbor day. You can arguably, as I think you just alluded to, you can arguably stretch that to December 14th. But as a matter of statutory law, on December 14th, the electors meet and they elect the president. And that information on December 14th has to get communicated to Congress. And on January 6th, Congress needs to count the votes. So the window for doing this is not large. And I kind of can't understand, you know, if we're operating on on these kinds of uh, imperatives in an emergency kind of a fashion, as the as the the Trump campaign has uh, has said, uh, it had a lawsuit in Michigan which it didn't prosecute, and it dropped. It had a lawsuit in Pennsylvania where it had fraud counts in it, and then it yanked the fraud counts out. 
So it's not like it hasn't had opportunities along the way weeks ago to get this information in front of courts or at least to try to push courts into you know, broader discovery. And that hasn't happened. So, you know, I agree that we should have these proceedings in front of these uh, in front of these state legislatures. I think that should happen regardless of of uh, what happens with the election. But they're running out of time if they're thinking that there's any way that they're going to change the result of this election. I don't think that Trump's legal team has afforded him very well in this whole process. So he's had ineffectual legal counsel effectively, but that's, you know, that that, that ultimately is his responsibility. I, I think people see, uh, for example, the state of Georgia learning no lessons, even though it's a Republican-controlled state, learning no lessons from what happened on November 3rd as Raffensperger sets up these uh, uh, ballot harvesting drop-off boxes in advance of the Senate race after uh, everything we're still going through in Georgia with respect to the November 3rd race. So I think you see ineffectual uh, representation, administration of the elections by uh, Republicans where they could do something to tighten it up, as you were describing, and then combine that with what we know about all the statistical anomalies emanating from swing states, as well as just generally speaking, and what we understand historically about certain jurisdictions as it comes to the administration of elections. Uh, you know, somebody who hails from Cook County, Illinois. So I know of what I speak a little bit too here. Um, So so you have a confluence of all of these things and it is undermining the legitimacy, the belief that these elections are fair or will be fair going forward. And people just want sort of their pound of flesh. It's sort of like the Russian collusion. We want somebody to be held accountable for what we know is happening, even if we can't prove it according to the rules of the game. All true. Um, On the other hand, um well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't say all true as to the legal representation that the president has gotten, because I'm 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 hesitant to point this out. But I'm you know I'm Rudy Giuliani hired and trained, so I'm not sure I should uh, uh, I should <laughs> okay. jump in with both feet on all that. Right. Um, all right. But we'll but, conflict um, you out of answering that question. All right. <laughs> but you know, look, I think that um, I I don't like seeing what they're doing in. Georgia, as far as, uh, you know, the drop boxes and that stuff. I don't know how hard it would be to change the law in Georgia at this point. And it's a lot to ask, uh, you know, to get, uh, you know, it's a very small amount of time between the November election and the January election to kind of rethink and redo how we do elections. So, I, you know, they, they have a tough job. And even the president's counsel, look, I don't think they've done a great job here. And I think a lot of this has been more political than legal. Although I do agree with, uh, with our mutual friend, Richard Epstein, that it's, it's not a matter of just getting to the numerical point. If you can, if you can show so much fraud and it's so pervasive that you, that it tainted the process, um, you know, I think that would be enough, even if you couldn't show the exact number of votes to, to close the gap. So I, I agree with all of that. But I do think, for the reasons that we've discussed, this is a very tough job for, you know, for the most competent lawyers in the world, because you've got to pull this thing together with the clock ticking like it doesn't tick in any other litigation. Yeah. I mean, this election went on a week longer than November 3rd, and, you know, December 8th is coming hot and heavy, and if you're going to prove fraud, you've got to prove it in that window. Fraud is not the easiest thing to prove. 
He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Always a good conversation. Thank you for your insights, Andy. My pleasure. It's a nice day to start again. Come on, it's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Wow! Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. It was last week that Joe Biden rolled out what would be his foreign policy team if he is ratified as the president of the United States. Uh, And the multilateralists are back, much like yesterday, his rollout of the economic team. The corporate Keynesians are back. One of those multilateralists, going back to the foreign policy team, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she is his designee for U.S. ambassador to the U.N., she offered uh, this pronouncement during that rollout last week. Multilateralism is back. Diplomacy is back. For a more on some of what uh, the Biden foreign policy team has said, as well as some discussion about her time in the Trump administration. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend KT McFarland, former First Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump, author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best sort of high-level show of anybody in the country, so it's an honor. Thank you. All right. Uh, cut and print that. We're going to be using that for <laughs> from now to time immemorial from KT. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Let's start with this uh, callback to a halcyon era where things like diplomacy existed before they were interrupted by, you know, you and your Trump friends. So we're going back to diplomacy. We're going back to multilateralism. We're going to reestablish America's standing in the world, all of the things we apparently lost over the last four years. And uh, this is the good news that the Biden would-bes are touting. You know, when they say diplomacy, I never know what that means. I think it means that they all just go to meetings and chat, chat, chat. And when they say return to American leadership, well, for them, what that means is bringing out the checkbook and paying for everything again. Multilateralism, globalism, I think the American people have pretty resoundingly rejected that in favor of a doctrine that puts American interests first. So I think it's all fuzzy, fuzzy. They're going to rejoin agreements. They're going to rejoin the Paris Accords, which is the Green New Deal equivalent for the world. And what that really means is that America brings out the checkbook and underwrites everybody else's turn towards sustainable energy. And what it really means is that China gets off the hook. China, in this agreement, China never had to do anything to stop and curb its emissions. And it means the United States has to curb its emissions, fossil fuel emissions. But we're already doing that because of fracking, which these guys don't like either. Fracking has allowed us actually to move from coal, which is dirty, to natural gas, which is cleaner. A lot of American businesses and and manufacturing has turned to natural gas, which we now have abundantly and cheaply and more cleanly. So we're already there. The only big difference is we're now going to bring out the checkbook and underwrite everybody else. But what well, worries me now is the Iran nuclear deal. Well, uh, before we get to that, I just on, on the uh, matter of uh, fracking and, and energy independence, which is a national security issue, as you intimate, uh, John Kerry, the uh, eco czar, is going to take care of that. He's going to go over to China and tell those chi in no uncertain terms that they have to stop uh, building those coal-fired plants. 
if you don't have leverage, and if you don't have leverage that you're willing to use and employ, and if you're not willing to be pretty ruthless about it, you're not negotiating, you're not having diplomacy, you're just begging, you're just requesting. You don't have anything to back it up. So if John Kerry is going to go and ask the Chinese, please, pretty please, will you stop your emissions? They're just going to laugh him out of the room. But they're not going to stop unless they have to stop. So the new energies are, at the same time that he's going to go ask the Chinese, please stop your coal plants, he's going to then turn to the American energy industry and say, no, no, no fracking. Right. No American energy independence. Right. <laughs> no cheap gasoline. And he's also going to pretend that the Chinese aren't paying attention to what's happening domestically. Yeah, come on. I mean, it's 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 woolly headed. It's on the one hand they're going to let the Chinese do everything that the Chinese want, and on the other hand they're going to make sure that we get both hands tied behind our backs. Um, that's, uh, I guess, what uh, became known as leading from behind. Uh, we're going to do that again, but in, but in a multilateral fashion. So just to, if you can layer in enough of these, uh, the, the, the gobbledygook speak from inside the beltway, then it sounds uh, perfectly plausible and wonderful and borderline utopian. Sorry. These guys make great speeches, but they, but they never follow up with any of it. And, and the other thing that Pompeo uh, brought up as well in response to some of what was said from the would-be Biden team is, uh, you know, we have worked with other nations. You know, this whole idea is the, the caricature of Republican administrations, not just Trump's, but including Trump's, is that we're go-it-alone cowboys. We don't work with other nations. And Pompeo said, you know, we put together a coalition of nations with respect to trying to uh, address the, uh, the communist-induced crisis in Venezuela. And we've worked with other nations when it comes to Middle Eastern policy, and we've worked, obviously, with other nations to broker these normalization agreements between Israel and Arab countries. So, I mean, just this this whole sort of left narrative that runs counter to the facts always that uh, these are neo-isolationists in the Trump administration, a fortress America, America alone sort of uh, types, it's just just untrue on on the substance of it. Yeah, I think you've said it very well. I couldn't say it any better. It's it's deeds, not words. Um, the Trump administration, President Trump said a lot of things, but he didn't, you know, I never took a lot of it terribly seriously. I always watched what he did. To me, deeds are much more important than words. Uh, when we come back with Katie McFarland, I want to uh, get her reaction to the pardoning of Michael Flynn, General Flynn. Katie McFarland, former first deputy national security advisor to President Trump, author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with KT McFarland, former first deputy national security advisor to President Trump and author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. And uh, KT, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your reaction to the pre-Thanksgiving pardon of uh, your former colleague, General Michael Flynn, uh, by President Trump, something that even a lot of Michael Flynn detractors, at least those on the right, said was long overdue, that his treatment was, was really the crime. I think his treatment was the Department of Justice, in this case, was the Department of Injustice. They targeted General Flynn. They shouldn't have investigated him. They tricked him. They charged him with a crime. They forced him to plead guilty to save his son. They extorted a confession out of him. And I think President Trump did the right thing. It should have happened a long time ago. And it's just a tragedy to see how, as I think the Wall Street Journal said, here's a man who has given his life for his fellow countrymen. 
his entire career, and yet his fellow countrymen, some of his fellow countrymen didn't do well by him. But it was really never about General Flynn or me or the others that they persecuted. It was always about getting to Donald Trump because the, the Washington establishment, they looked at Donald Trump as just a vile enemy because he was going to upend the cozy little game that they've had. That were, It's been the, the, where the Washington establishment, and in that I put Republicans, Democrats, the media, the think tanks, the special interest groups, they were so used to running things for their own purposes that they forgot who they worked for, which was the rest of the American people. And so the rest of the American people put Donald Trump in to shake things up, and that Washington establishment just couldn't bear it. So they went after General Flynn as a way to getting to President Trump. They got Flynn to commit, you know, to plead guilty to crimes he didn't commit. They tried to do that to me. I write about it in my book. Right. I wouldn't do it. Um, but they wanted Flynn and me and others to accuse Trump of crimes he didn't commit. And when that didn't work, then they went with the Russia collusion thing, and then they went with impeachment, and then they went with Trump and the coronavirus. And so it was always one attempt after another to destroy a duly elected president of the United States. And these are the same people that are suggesting now they are going to usher in a new era of civility and normalcy and and, and, and uh, American unity uh, with the Biden presidency. Well, great. Let's see. Let's see some positive steps in that direction. I certainly haven't seen any. Mm-hmm. Uh, with respect to um, uh, your experience with, uh, as you were sort of alluding to, and you write about in your book, we just re- refresh people's recollection to what they subjected you to. Uh, a lot of people know about Michael Flynn, but perhaps less familiar with your story, just to your point about going after every avenue they could to try to topple the Trump presidency. Well, I was, they showed up at my door in, in Long Island. I had left the Trump administration at that point, and Mueller investigators came knocking at my door saying, we'd like to um, talk to you about your time. They were very friendly and said, we'd like to talk to you because our job, we've been tasked with trying to find out what the Russians did. And I said, well, well, there's nobody in the country that wants to find out what the Russians did in the 2016 election, how they did it, and prevent anybody from doing it ever again. So they started asking me questions, and then they came back a second time and a third time. And each time they came back, they um, they sort of showed me documents that I would have seen or written. And I said, well, can I get a copy of that? Or will you let me have access to my records, to my phone logs, to my text messages? I was a good girl. I was a Girl Scout. I turned all that stuff into the government when I left the government job. And I said, no, 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 we can, we'll show you what we want to show you. And they were the whole time trying to get me in a perjury trap, which is what they tried with General Flynn and others. And a perjury trap is when you lie to the government. You don't really have to mean to lie. You can do it by mistake. So if they said to me, well, uh, when did you have this, this phone call? And I said, I think it was that Tuesday night. And it turns out it was Wednesday morning. They will say, well, you obviously lied. You should have remembered that. You didn't need to look at your notes. You should have remembered that. You're obviously lying to us. Um, that's a, you know, we're going to charge you with perjury. So at the end of the day, they did the same thing to General Flynn, and they threw in the, the sort of sweetener that they were going to destroy his son and bankrupt him unless he pled guilty. To me, I just said, no. I mean, I was very tempted to tell them whatever they wanted at a certain point. I was so beaten down by them. But my lawyer said, no, you shouldn't do it. And my husband said, my husband, my wonderful husband said, honey, you, you know, your integrity means more to you than your career. And if you have to fight it for the rest of your life, you cannot plead guilty to a crime you did not commit. And you cannot implicate others or, or say others committed crimes that they did not commit. 
And that's how the FBI was working. That's how the Mueller investigation was working. And this is all now coming out. At the time, it was pretty scary because yeah. I didn't know what anybody was doing or why were they coming after me. But now it's since come out in handwritten notes and in text messages and emails that the and uh, IG reports and, and, and IG all, all reports sorts of things. Yeah, and the Durham reports all come out that these guys made this whole thing up. They made uh, it up. They did it to get to Flynn and they get it to hope to get to Trump. How how uh, are you encouraged at all with the Barr's move announced yesterday, sort of out the door, that uh, designating Durham as a special counsel so that he cannot be so easily removed that Biden would have to do it very publicly? And, and um, you know, there's a political cost potentially to pay to that, even despite the fact we didn't get a completion of the Durham investigation in, in time for the election. Yes. I mean, I think that was that was a good thing. But whether anything comes of it, I don't know. I mean, can you imagine a Justice Department and FBI lawyers and agents who are being asked, well, what about your boss? Was he was he doing bad stuff? Right. Well, I, I just think it'll be very hard. to. I, I think it'll all get buried, sadly. And, and that, to me, is the greatest tragedy of all. It's not the lives they've destroyed. It's not the fact that they set the American people up for this and that they've sort of wasted our time and put us at each other's throats. It's that they got away with it. Yeah. And so what's the, what's, what does that message send to the other people in the Washington establishment? If anybody comes after you, the next Donald Trump, I say, well, we can manipulate the inside. We'll have a resistance. We'll just make sure that we run things forever. And that, I think, is the upsetting thing because it goes to the fundamental concept of who we are as a nation, right? We're supposed to be we the people. We're not, you know, we the people whose job it is to pay for the Washington establishment. They're not our overlords. They're our employees. No, I think that's right, and, and I, I, I don't think the nation is going to quickly, or at least a significant portion of it, maybe half of it, is going to recover anytime soon uh, from this lack of accountability that uh, persists. Uh, yeah, yes, Trump struck a blow for justice in pardoning General Flynn, but I mean that is the tip of the sort of reckoning that is required to restore people's faith in these important law enforcement and intelligence agencies at the federal level. Not only restore the people's faith, but restore the the fear put into the hearts and minds of the people who are in the, in the Washington establishment that don't think you can get away with this. You try this again and you're going to get caught. You're going to pay a price. She is KT McFarland, former first deputy national security advisor to President Trump. The book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate your time. It's always a great pleasure. Come on, Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, turning attention to Georgia, Gabriel Sterling is one of Georgia's top election officials, and he issued uh, a rebuke to President Trump and Georgia's Republican senators in response to the typical threats and intimidation targeting state election workers saying, it looks like you lost the state of Georgia, Mr. President. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. You have the right to go through this court. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to set up and to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit political acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone is going to get killed. And it's not right. Uh, he uh, said uh, the wife of Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is, has received sexualized threats to her cell phone. 
and said that the uh, revelation that a young contractor with Dominion Voting Systems in Gwinnett County, Georgia, received death threats and was targeted with a noose was the last straw, and he felt the need to speak out. Uh huh. Look, there is no place for threats of violence in uh, in this discussion. There's no need for it. I don't think the president is responsible for what people do any more than Bernie Sanders, as we've talked about before, is responsible for a Bernie Sanders supporter shooting up a softball practice with a bunch of Republican members of the House and almost killing Steve Scalise. So, yes, uh, I think the focus is on the administration of the election in Georgia, not just November 3rd, but prospectively for January 5th in those runoff elections for those two Senate seats which uh, couldn't be more important, as evidenced by what uh, Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins participated in yesterday with respect to a trillion-dollar COVID quote-unquote relief package that uh, is a sort of a front for a blue state and city bailout, 25% of it at least, which is significant. But, you know, this, 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 uh, the idea that threats only run in one direction. And uh, the only person who is responsible for the escalating rhetoric and uh, – concern about people's safety is if it's coming from the Trump side or if it's coming from President Trump's prosecution of his legal rights, as Mr. Sterling concedes, uh, and his political interests. So, uh, yes, baseline, uh, no threats, no need to uh, engage in or threaten violence, but uh, you can come as hard as you want with respect to substantive claims that need to be litigated, whether in courts of law or in the court of public opinion. The hand-wringing that only goes in one direction or is only reported in one direction is a little bit tiresome for me. Uh, By the way, for those wondering if Trump was going to get involved in those Georgia runoffs and help to turn out Trump supporters, can't lay down on their hands if you want to win those Georgia Senate seats. Well, Trump Jr., has recorded a 60-second radio spot that's going on the air. Now we take Georgia, and then we change the world. That was Democrat Senator Chuck Schumer saying what's next on his agenda. This is Donald Trump Jr. The radical left wants to tear down everything we've accomplished. Defunding the police, destroying private health insurance, and dismantling the Supreme Court. They'll take away our Second Amendment rights and make it harder for law-abiding citizens to defend themselves in their own homes. On January 5th, The U.S. Senate is on the line, and my father's accomplishments are on your ballot. And so uh, the battle has been joined by Trump world as anticipated. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com and uh, on social media at Dan Proft or at Dan Proft Show. That includes Parlor. Turning our attention to COVID and the indispensable Holman Jenkins, particularly during COVID, his uh, most recent offering in the Wall Street Journal, We Decide How Much COVID. The U.S. promoted the illusion of control instead of the wisdom of risk management. And that persists to this day, doesn't it? The illusion of control. We want to pretend politicians are responsible so we can hold them accountable. And what are the incentives faced by politicians? You can surmise the incentives based on the policies that are being pursued, regardless of particular impact, at least in, t- in terms of efficacy. Jenkins writes, when a disease spreads more easily than the flu by people with few or no symptoms, 
it will be, quote unquote, extremely difficult to contain to use the recent admission of Tony Fauci. That's sort of a wild understatement. Our testing will be lucky to catch one case in 10, to use the estimate of the CDC's Robert Redfield during the summer surge. It was always going to fall to 330 million Americans, as it clearly has, to heed advice and do the best they can to limit the damage of a virus that can't be controlled by officials exercising their elected powers. Don't tell that to the D.C. press corps. And so Holman Jenkins uh, adds, It is bracing to consider that if deaths today were 100,000 instead of 250,000, our rancorous politics in the media would not reflect that we had just saved 150,000 lives. There was never going to be a good outcome from COVID, but any situation can be improved. The time-honored prophylactic for panic is actionable information. Unfortunately, in their own panic, our officials encouraged the first surge by suggesting they could control the disease, then tried to redress their error with unsustainable lockdowns. We've been on the seesaw ever since. And to his point, think about politicians, including Trump, so this runs the ideological gamut, who started from the the British Andrew Ferguson model of 2.2 million lives will be lost in America if effectively if you don't lock down. And, and then when that we locked down and 2.2 million people didn't die, politicians run around taking credit for the you know now, let's say, 2 million people who didn't die. And it wouldn't change and it didn't change the media coverage of this one iota. I think he has a point. It's uh, one of the so-called monkey traps of the pandemic. And this was the topic of a piece over at OvercomingBias.com by Robin Hansen. Different monkey trap, but, you know, monkey trap, uh, the hole in the cage is big enough to get your hand through to get the banana, but it's not big enough to pull your hand out with the banana. That's where we're at with so many pandemic-related policies. And for more on the so-called monkey traps, we're pleased to be joined by Robin Hansen, who's an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, author of The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth, as well as The Elephant in the Brain. Professor Hansen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Before we get to uh, your monkey trap, as it were, uh, what about what uh, Holman Jenkins writes in the journal? about the, the seesaw that we started on and we have uh, in so many parts of the country been unable to get off over the last nine months? Uh, we definitely seem obsessed and focused on this topic. We won't let go. And you talk about this in the context in, in part of spend and um, medical treatments and that, you know, all the, again, it's sort of here. All of the incentives are for overreaction. All of the incentives are to come over the top with the effort to lock down the virus, to borrow from Joe Biden. And it's sort of the same thing with spend. All the uh, it come over the top, not just Operation Warp Speed, which you could argue was a success, but with, you know, sort of any and all potential therapies, anything related to personal protective equipment, anything with respect to loan slash grant programs for businesses and so forth. It's the willy nilly printing and spending of money that somebody else will have to pay back in some coming generation. For virtuous causes, people are always willing to argue for more and they're pretty reluctant to argue for less. And the problem is then you just do too much in the end because you're always wanting to do more. And so on the pandemic, there are just many things you can do and they seem like they might help a bit and maybe a lot. And the pressure is just always to do more. Well, right. And, and so, so, so speak to that, because this is interesting. There's a bit of a disagreement between um, you and your colleague, Brian Kaplan, on the one hand, and uh, another colleague, Tyler Cohen, uh, on the other, with respect to uh, the cost of COVID prevention versus the benefit of the uh, monies outlaid for COVID prevention. So we want to divide all the costs we're suffering from COVID into two big categories. One category is the direct harm that we are trying to avoid, i.e. people dying. And the other cost we're paying is all the effort we do to prevent that first cost. 
So that includes not just developing vaccines or uh, you know studying the problem, but it also includes all the contract tracing we may do, all the testing we may do, but more importantly, all of the ways in which we are locking down the economy or, and reducing our activity and wearing masks, et cetera. All of those are costs. We wanna compare the costs and the benefits here and ask, are the costs worth the benefits? So some people like my colleague, Tyler Cowan, wanna focus on the few kinds of costs they think are really effective and underdone. So they think some kinds of vaccine work and some kind of testing, really we should have spent a lot more on those things. And if we had done that, then maybe we would have had a lower problem and we would have you know, spent less on other things. But that's focused on a pretty small percentage of all the costs we're paying. If you look at the total costs we're paying, it's enormous and a plausibly at least a factor of five times larger than the harm we're preventing. And, and, and we're not just talking, by the way, this is important to know, we're not just talking about money here. We're also talking about a statistic that we've discussed before, including with uh, Rich Carlgaard, publisher of Forbes magazine, which is life years lost uh, when we talk about um, so the impacts of lockdown policy. Some of the costs you're talking about, how do you measure them? What's the metric? Well, one of them is life years lost. The main harms are actually easier to measure than the prevention effort. So the main harm is number of dead people, say. And then there's a number of people who are somewhat disabled from the disease, i.e. They, they don't die, but they are disabled for a while. And those costs are actually relatively well measured. And you know, if we add that up, it adds up to, say, maybe four weeks of income on average per person in the U.S. So if you know, this disease had gone everywhere and basically say half the population had got it. And then the percentage of those people had died who, who, who we think die from this and another percentage get disabled. All that harm adds up to say four weeks of income averaged out for everybody, which is a fair bit. But uh, then we look at all the costs and even if just starting with the economic costs, we have sort of the economy has been tanked and it'll take a while to, to regrow and that's a permanent loss. And we have our time in trouble, like we have to go wear masks and we don't like that. We can't visit friends. We don't like that. And of course, many people are unemployed and depressed and committing suicide and people don't get the same other medical care they might. The children are not happy. I mean, there's just all these different costs. So, so when my colleague Brian Kaplan and others and I try to calculate things, we often usually just look at a few of these costs. And even when we look at a couple of these costs, we still get at least five times as much cost being spent on prevention as we are suffering in the harm that, that we'd be preventing. So there's a basic principle in, in cost-benefit analysis, which is that the elasticity of prevention to harm prevented should be the same as the ratio of these two costs. So for example, if we're spending five times as much to prevent the harm as the harm we're preventing, then it should be true that if we added 1% more prevention costs, we should get 5% more reduction in the harm. And that's the really hard thing to believe. You make another important point in, in your post, too, uh, that I just wanted to emphasize. You, this is received as more or less rather than effective versus ineffective. Uh, and, and what you're really, you and Brian Kaplan are really talking about is uh, uh, efficacy uh, more so than, you know, sort of spending more or spending less. The, the key thing is in big areas like, say, education or medicine, you know, the, the simplest conversation to have is to say, are we spending too much or too little? And some people say, you know, our children are the future, education is the most important thing in the world, so we should spend more on education. And see, other people might say, health is the, is the most important thing, we should always spend as much as possible on health because nothing matters more than health. And those are all discussions about sort of overall spending. But when you look at actually overall spending on education and on medicine, it looks like we're spending way too much. 
And then if you go to the experts on this, they, they kind of admit that. They say, yeah, we're spending too much. But look, within all of this bad spending, there's got to be a little bit of good spending. You wouldn't want to cut right. that, would you? And right. That's what I call the monkey trap. The monkey. So like you mentioned, so the monkey trap is this thing they've you know, often done in, in third world countries, which is you, you put a little nut inside a gourd. And you, you show the monkey that it's there and you walk away from it. And the monkey wants that nut. And then he reaches his hand and grabs his hand around the nut. And he tries to pull the hand out, but it doesn't come out because now his hand is bigger. And he wants that nut. He really wants it. And he won't let go of that nut. And you can run down and chase the monkey and catch him and even kill him and eat him because he won't let go of that nut. And we are that way with many things we get obsessed by that become sacred to us, like the nut of effective education or effective medicine is just this thing we, we say we, we couldn't possibly let go of that. We couldn't give up on that. And so we must hold on to this gourd of ineffective other things. And that's what we're doing with the pandemic. We are spending way too much because we figure we ought to do something. Surely we shouldn't do nothing about it. And even if that's true, it doesn't mean you can't do too much. He is Robin Hansen, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason, author of The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth, and also The Elephant in the Brain. Professor Hansen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show well james o'keefe and his project veritas crew have done it again this is pretty entertaining o'keefe posting yesterday that uh one of their insiders, whistleblowers at CNN, got them access to the 9 a.m. daily editorial call that Jeffrey Zucker, the president of CNN, hosts with uh, all of the dutiful automatons that repeat what they are told to repeat at these editorial meetings by Jeff Zucker in some form or fashion. And uh, pretty funny how James O'Keefe introduced this investigation that he's been doing or this compilation of information from these calls that he's been doing. He just introduced himself on the CNN call itself. You're unmuted. Hey, Jeff Zucker, are you there? Hey, this is James O'Keefe. We've been listening to your CNN calls for basically two months, uh, recording everything. Um, Just wanted to ask you some questions, if you have a minute. Um, Do you still feel you're the most trusted name in news? Because I have to say, from what I've been hearing on these phone calls, I don't know about that. I mean, we got a lot of recordings that indicate you're not really that uh, independent of a, of a journalist. Um, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, your comments. Um, so, everybody, in light of that, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll set up a, a, a new system and we'll uh, we'll be back with you. We'll do the rest of the call uh, a little bit later. We're going to release okay. those recordings today at seven o'clock. So, stay tuned. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. So um, you just heard me talk to uh, uh, the president of CNN, Jeff Zucker, and inform him that um, uh, that we are going to release uh, a number of recordings today. Yeah, and uh, so those recordings did get released. And uh, perhaps this will not be surprising to most of you. But again, there's what you 
believe is going on behind the scenes, what you understand or think might be happening. And then there's the confirmation of it when you hear from the horse's mouth, this is what they're doing. They're doing largely what you think they're doing, which is they're not in the business of reporting facts, providing context and consequence to information to uh, drive a understanding and perhaps a discussion on the merits of the issues of the day. But they're trying to advance one political agenda and trying to undermine another political agenda. And so, for example, here's Jeff Zucker, per the release by Project Veritas of some of the clips from some of the calls. Jeff Zucker, and this is in the weeks uh, leading up to Election Day because, as you'll hear from Zucker, the context here is reporting on Trump, and there's reference to uh, Trump uh, dealing with his COVID positivity, that he had been infected with COVID. So this is, again, within a few weeks of uh, the election, and here's Jeff Zucker directing, really, an editorial call, a free exchange, but really it's direction from Jeff Zucker to the CNN team of how to cover President Trump. Okay, I, I just want to reemphasize that, uh, you know, I, I think we, we cannot normalize what has happened here uh, in the last week with Trump and his behavior. And I, I go back to what David said, David Chalian said, that this is a president who knows he's losing, who knows he's in trouble, uh, is sick, maybe is uh, on on uh, the after effects of steroids or not, I don't know. But he is acting erratically and desperately. And we we need to, uh, uh, we need to, we need to not normalize that. You know, this is what we've come to expect uh, for the last three and a half years, four years. But it clearly is exacerbated by uh, the time that we're in and the issues that he's dealing with. And I think that we cannot just let let it be normalized. He is all over the place and acting erratically. And I think mm-hmm. we need to lean into that. Yeah, lean into it. Uh, and with, uh, you know, pet theories like uh, the after effects of the steroids he's on for his COVID infection. Oh, OK. Uh, that's journalism. So there's Jeff Zucker telling you how to cover something that needs to be covered, which is, again, Trump is a madman. He's erratic. He's unreliable. He's not up to the task. And uh, then here's Jeff Zucker telling you what not to cover. And this, uh, what you're about to hear, is clearly in relation to uh, the Hunter Biden story. The, 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 the Trump media, uh, you know, moves immediately from, okay, well, never mind that unmasking was, you know, uh, found to be completely nonsensical to, to the latest uh, uh, alleged scandal and uh, expect everybody to just follow suit. So uh, I, I don't think that we should be repeating unsubstantiated smears uh, just because the right-wing media suggests that we should. Right. We only repeat unsubstantiated smears against people on our hit list. We don't repeat them against people that we're trying to assist, you see. That's the standard. Again, not surprising, but it's nice to have the confirmation. And here's an example of what I mean. When it comes to going after somebody, they're not afraid to do that. Targeting somebody without any particular basis other than he needs to be targeted, like Lindsey Graham. Frankly, if we've made any mistake, it's that our banners have been too uh, polite and, and we need to go well after Lindsey Graham. There's a ton going on. Let's stay strong. Let's stay newsy. Let's stay urgent. Let's be smart. There is a lot of news out there. And uh, Lindsey Graham really deserves it. Yeah, really, Lindsey Graham needs to be gone after. Why? Because we say so. That's how you decide uh, the stories you're going to cover and the angles from which you're going to cover them? 
No, we have a hit list. We have people that were defending the sacred cows. We have people that were looking to undermine. Maybe they thought they could help uh, flip that Senate seat. Uh, And then there's this, just again, to make clear what you probably suspect to be true. CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangle on uh, now we're post-election. And uh, the perspective of the CNN reporter uncovering the transition, but not providing a platform for Trump's lack of a concession. Why? Because the Biden campaign said so. We have to be, you know, news organizations have to be very careful and very responsible about not giving Trump too much of a platform on his not conceding because they feel the transition can go forward and you know other than the national security briefings which are critical to start now uh, they just don't want us to exaggerate that trump isn't leaving office and i'm going to have a lot of specific reporting on that later today yeah they don't want us to so we shouldn't because they don't want us to because we're acting at the direction of the Biden camp. That clear? CNN field producer Stephanie Becker uh, with Jeff Zucker echoing what she had to say. Why is uh, this story about the transition and the alleged lethargy of the GSA sort of uh, 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 moving forward with the transition? You know, this was the complaint uh, the other week, up, up until the other week. Moving forward with the transition, making funds available. we got to get these national security briefings because so much hangs in the balance. So we need to push the transition to push the idea of finality of the election in the public mind. And if we don't, uh, this is how we should report on what could happen. On the issue of why it's important to get the transition going right, um, the 9-11 report, talks about one of the problems was that this, the, 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 the trouble that was brewing got lost during the transition. So if you want a good concrete example of what happens when you don't have a good transition, go look at the Twin Towers. Yeah. So I think that's an important point. Uh- yeah. Uh, that's an important point, isn't it? Uh, but there's no concern about the transition from Obama to Trump, of course. In my best James Earl Jones... And with uh, thanks to Project Veritas, this is CNN, and this is Dan Brown. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So the, the uh, news on the vaccine front continues to be positive with uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine winning authorization in Britain and uh, some 800,000 doses of the vaccine to be dispatched as soon as the beginning of next week. Here in this country, the CDC also made their recommendation on the prioritization for vaccines uh, when uh, uh, it's expected uh, the Moderna vaccine, I assume the Pfizer vaccine to follow, will be approved later this month actually a decision that um, could come as as soon as this week. CDC panel recommending giving uh, COVID-19 vaccines to healthcare workers and then nursing home residents first. And this sounds straightforward, but um, there has been a lot of discussion about this among medical professionals. It's interesting discussion about highest best use of the initial rounds of vaccine, as of course they 
are not going to be distributed to everybody who wants them simultaneously, so there has to be a prioritization. For more on uh, these topics and other related COVID matters, we're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Joel Zinberg. He is the, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C., also an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So, uh, you know, give us your overall assessment of, uh, one, sort of the remarkable outcome, at least that we seem to be on the cusp of, from Operation Warp Speed, and number two, how you're viewing the rollout of these various vaccines as they're securing approvals. Well, I think it's a really remarkable achievement. It normally takes about 10 years to create a vaccine for a new virus that creates a new disease. And here within 10 months, you have two companies, Moderna and Pfizer, that have applied for authorization. AstraZeneca, it looks like it's not very far behind. We are likely to have millions of doses before the end of the year and probably over a billion doses in 2021. So it's really an incredible achievement. As you say, the critical question is how do we start distributing the vaccine? And I think you have pretty good agreement both between the U.S., the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Policy met yesterday and approved uh, their initial guideline, which was to distribute to healthcare personnel and uh, residents and nursing homes. And what's going on in Britain. Britain is going to start with nursing homes and then go to healthcare personnel. So both countries are pretty much on the same page in terms of who should get initial priority. How, what is your assessment of the reactions you're seeing around the country? Because they vary significantly from, say, Florida to California or New York or Illinois to the uh, second wave of COVID infections, as it were, and the allegedly long, dark winter that we're set to endure. Well, I think everyone is really kind of tired of the whole thing, (laughs) and they'd like it to be over. That doesn't mean we don't have to be vigilant and try to do the things that are easy to do, or things like social distancing and mask wearing. And in terms of what their governments are doing, the governors and state legislatures, I think they're relatively holding true to form. Places like Florida are not going crazy in terms of lockdown. I'm in New York, where our governor is set to reimpose all sorts of lockdown measures the way he did in the spring, Uh, hopefully goes about it a little more intelligently than he did back then. So the amazing thing to me, though, is that cases are rising around the country regardless of what approach was taken. Yes. And something else that was interesting since you're in New York, Bill de Blasio succumbing to pressure to reopen the schools because... uh, There was no new information that led to this decision. There was pressure to open the schools based on, frankly, something approaching scientific consensus on schools being the safest place for kids. And ultimately, de Blasio relented after reimposing the shutdown. Is it very interesting? Yeah, very interesting. And look, I wrote back in the spring that it didn't make much sense to lock kids out of school because all that happens is then they go home uh, and they can infect their grandparents. You know, they sit around home all day or they go out to the playground where they can get infected. Then they come home as opposed to having them in school where at least they're in a controlled environment and you can try to do the types of things we think will mitigate viral transmission. And as I mentioned earlier, they themselves are at very low risk and there is some information, not ironclad, but there's some indications and studies that kids may be a little less susceptible to getting infected in the first place, and they also may be a little less likely to spread the virus. So when you balance that 
scientific information against the very clear harms that kids are enduring by not being in school, the impact on their social development, their educational development, and ultimately their economic well-being, it's pretty clear that the kids ought to be in school unless there's something really awful going on, and there, and there isn't something really awful going on here in New York. When we come back with Dr. Joel Zinberg, Associate Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai in New York, I want to get his take on mandating vaccines. Uh, we'll uh, start there right after this. The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. Joel Zinberg, Associate Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai in New York. And uh, Dr. Zinberg, I wanted to get your perspective on mandatory vaccinations and sort of extending the precedent-setting nature of such mandates. Justice Alito made this point about Jacobson a couple of weeks ago. Don't read too much into Jacobson. That was a very limited case in a limited jurisdiction in Massachusetts. It doesn't necessarily have national implication. So I know that there's a lot of uh, legal scholars, and I use that in quotation marks, running around waving Jacobson around for national mask mandates and national lockdown policies and national vaccination mandates. But uh, they may run into a Supreme Court that doesn't quite interpret it like they do. Um, right. I'm it, very hopeful that you're correct. I mean, the yeah. problem is that Jacobson remains good law to this day, and there have been a lot of cases around the country. Not uh, they haven't really re- most of them really haven't reached the Supreme Court, but at right. lower district court levels and uh, circuit court of appeals levels, they still cite Jacobson for all sorts of public health measures that infringe on constitutional rights without, I think, realizing that, you know, Jacobson was a very different situation than what we have now. That was a smallpox uh, epidemic in in Boston, excuse me, in Massachusetts, uh, that uh, at at a time when smallpox killed three out of ten people that infected and the survivors were left with scars and often blind. I mean, COVID is not a, a good disease, but it, it's a hell of a lot closer to the flu than it is to smallpox. Well, so, exactly. And, 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 it, and it seems to me this is the discussion. And so now we, vaccine is part of this discussion. Is, are there any limiting principles for government when it comes to doing things under the auspices of public health? So I, I want to get your perspective on what you think about mandating a COVID-19 vaccination before uh, you can go back to school in person, for example, or mandating a COVID-19 vaccine before you can travel on an airplane. There's talk about immunity passports, something that uh, Qantas, the Australian airline, is already pursuing. Right. Well, I mentioned earlier, I would really not be too anxious to have a broad government mandate. I think that would be unduly broad and, and oppressive. I think, though, if you focus on individual entities where it makes sense and where they can on an individualized basis assess the risks and benefits of requiring all sorts of mitigation measures, including vaccination, then it begins to make sense in terms of limiting the amount of coercion. So if a hospital or a nursing home requires that its staff and residents as a condition of employment or as a condition of residence, be vaccinated, that makes some sense to me. Uh, and, and that's a relatively limited measure. 
and it protects the people who are most vulnerable. I mean, after all, the elderly and the sick uh, form a high proportion of the folks who live in long-term care in nursing homes, and they constitute somewhere between 40 to 45 percent of the deaths in this country. So if we can start out by protecting them, then we're a long way towards ending the pandemic. And, and it seems to me, too, one of the issues with vaccine mandates, since this is going to be uh, hotly debated, is um, the precedent it sets that then you'll have to go back and reconsider the, the failure to set a precedent with respect to previous illnesses. So, for example, there's not uh, you know, vaccine mandates for uh, to get for, for the flu. You don't have to get the flu shot to send your kid to school. And yet the flu kills more children on an annualized basis than COVID, based on what we know to be true at this point. So if you're going to mandate COVID for sending the kids a vaccination to send the kids to school, then how do you not also mandate the flu shot? And then we get into going backwards as well as setting a precedent going forward. Well, we, we do know every state in the nation has a mandate for childhood diseases. Right. Uh, and many hospitals and, and other medical facilities have established their own mandates for their, their health workers. And a, a small minority of states have done that as well for health workers or workers in, in long-term care facilities. So there is a precedent for doing it, but you have to be smart about how you do it. And you, you want to do it in it's the least coercive way possible. The, uh, the study on mask wearing and lockdown policies that was done by Mount Sinai in conjunction with the U.S. Navy, with these Marines that were quarantined versus uh, the control group of Marines that were not quarantined, and finding essentially that uh, mask wearing and uh, lockdown policies made no difference. In point of fact, the uh, experimental group that was locked down saw a higher infection rate than the control group. And uh, other than in a few places, despite it being published in a reputable medical journal, the results of the study, I haven't seen much discussion of it. Why do you think that is? Well, look, I think the science around mask wearing is unfortunately largely anecdotal. There have been very few studies. There was actually a recent Danish study that actually was a randomized control trial, which found that if there was an effect, it was very small. In other words, they, they found a small decrease attributable to mask wearing in the community as opposed to the control work uh, group, which wasn't required to wear masks, and it wasn't statistically significant. So the effect, it, it, the best I think anyone can say when the reviews that have been published in the medical literature is that uh, mask wearing probably has an effect, but it's really the strongest effect is when it's in the medical setting. When it's used in a community setting, it's less clear that w how big the impact is. And whatever impact there is, is probably larger in terms of uh, protecting people around the mask wearer as opposed to protecting the mask wearer themselves. We're yeah, and that, and that Danish study got about as much attention as the Mount Sinai study, which is to say not <laughs> much. And, um, and, and I just, I, I don't know why. This seems to be like, oh, this would be an interesting conversation, be something interesting for Redfield and Fauci and others to comment on, and yet nobody seems to be interested in discussing that, that research. Right. I mean, as I say, there are all sorts of studies like that. There was a, uh, there's the observation about the two hairdressers. Uh, I can't remember which state it was, but I think it was out west, who were infected and uh, uh, then, but were wear mask wearing, but then had all their customers come in and none of the customers became infected. So that's right. become on one side of the argument good ammunition to say how effective mask wearing is. And then on the other side, you have other studies. So it, it's not quite as clear as people 
would lead you to believe. However, it's certainly clear in the medical setting that it seems to make uh, a difference. How clear it is in the community setting is less clear. But, I mean, the, the good news is wearing a mask is not the most onerous thing in the world. So if we, even if it's a small effect, I think it would be a good idea if everyone did. Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, former uh, Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale gave his first interview with Martha McCallum on Fox News since a rather ignominious departure from the public scene. But it, more interesting was his discussion of him being deposed. Also, he suggested that Jared Kushner had been marginalized, that the two of them had worked very well together on the campaign up until the point that he was demoted and then shunted aside, and that they had a plan, which included a robust Election Day program because there were ballot integrity concerns that they were trying to anticipate dealing with by organizing legal presence throughout the country on November 3rd. And he suggested that uh, those who took over the reins from him, sort of walked away from the plan that they had set up, and perhaps that made the difference uh, from Trump uh, losing what he admits is sort of a contested issue. And by the way, he is still a Trump loyalist. He's still holding out hope that Trump can turn this around. I came up with the largest budget ever of Election Day operations in partnership with the RNC. What that meant was to have lawyers everywhere, file suits beforehand, protect beforehand. And somehow between July of 2020 and Election Day, that fell apart. And that's a question that I don't know exactly what the answer is, but from everything I'm hearing, it did not occur. And I think that is a travesty to this campaign. I wanted regional lawyer over staff. Would you have been able to get them in? I mean, you know, I, I, I think we would have followed the lawsuits beforehand. We would have been asking beforehand. We'd have been trying to. Why weren't during the early voting days? Why weren't they already getting into their in there and then already following lawsuits? Why they're not in there? Why did we? Why are, why are we doing a post? And I think that. Somebody did drop the ball on that. And he doesn't name names and he doesn't assign blame. But here's the it maybe that's true. And I'm not uh, holding Parscale out as uh, the oracle when it comes to election integrity. He doesn't have a lot of actual campaign experience prior to 2016. And he takes a lot of credit for 2016 in the interview. So this is not just to accept Parscale's view of what occurred without qualification, except to say this. There is a Trump campaign accountability for not having the sort of presence in these big urban districts, in these swing states around the country that is required, that you knew or should have known would be required. I don't know about somebody like filing lawsuits beforehand and stuff. You know, that's just something he throws out. There were a, a lot. There was a lot of litigation by essentially allies of the Trump operation, including Judicial Watch, in advance of the election with respect to states that were looking to relax their mail-in voting rules and the like. There was a lot of litigation going in a lot of different directions. But in terms of the presence on that day so that we would have – uh, real-time information about things like the vote count being stopped or significant ballot drops occurring in the wee hours of the morning in urban centers. 
these sorts of matters that are now being litigated after the fact, there should have been robust presence on election night and into the next day such that all of this stuff could have been filmed, documented, stopped, the alarms set off and so forth, that it doesn't appear that there was. And so whether Parscale had a real plan or not, um, but it does suggest, hey, look, you, 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 the campaign needs to be accountable, too. And we need to recognize where things could have been done better that may have prevented President Trump and the nation from being in the situation we find ourselves in three weeks after the election. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at danproft and at danprofshow, including Parlor. Captain Kangaroo impersonator Janet Yellen, who is uh, Joe Biden's selection for Secretary of Treasury, was part of the uh, rollout of the uh, Biden economic team yesterday. Uh, here's uh, what she had to say about uh, her focus as a uh, potential Treasury Secretary. Racial disparities in pay, job opportunities, housing food security, and small business lending that deny wealth building to communities of color, gender disparities that keep women out of the workforce and keep our economy from running at full force. It's a convergence of tragedies. Uh-huh. And uh, Janet Yellen uh, would, uh, or I guess the NASDAQ, uh, second largest exchange in the world, uh, was happy to fold right in with the identitarians that Joe Biden is nominating, asking the SEC to impose a quota system on the boards of companies it lists on its exchange, the new rule mandating, if adopted by the SEC, it would mandate that corporate boards of listed companies have a minimum of one female director and one director who is a minority or LGBTQ. And if, if you are not making the progress that the NASDAQ demands with respect to the quote-unquote diversity of your board, then you can face public shaming and potentially delisting. And uh, it is worth noting, as Zero Hedge noted, there is no requirement currently that members of the boards of these companies actually be able to read a balance sheet. It's sort of a remarkable development, but is it so remarkable? Now, I wonder here the question. Now, would these groups be considered minorities? They are minorities. What's a minority? It's um, not the majority. Well, our friend Mark Perry, economics professor over at the University of Michigan, makes the uh, put up a little chart that's uh, worth looking at. Median earnings for full-time year-round female workers by ethnicity and ancestry group. This is last year. Median earnings for full-time year-round female workers. Asian Indian Americans, 75.9. Taiwanese American, 78. Turkish American females, 67. Iranian American, female, 64. Chinese American, 62. Lebanese American, $61,000. Median household income. Russian American, 61,000. Slovene uh, Americans, 60,000. Lithuanian Americans, 60,000. Korean Americans, 60,000. Ukrainian Americans, 59,000. Palestinian Americans, females, 58,000. Slovak Americans, 57,000. Those are all women of those ethnicities. The median income. You know what the median income for white male Americans is? 
57,000. It is lower than all of those groups that I just mentioned of female workers. So if I uh, have a Lebanese-American female on my board, is that a minority? A Turkish-American female? A Chinese-American female? Ukrainian-American female? Korean-American female? Let's have a conversation. Let's also have a conversation about the white male patriarchy while we're at it, given the median household, median earnings of women in these categories compared to the median earnings of a white male in America. Oh, and by the way, part of the Biden economic team turns out to be a couple of three Republican senators in, uh, in the United States Senate, uh, led by, of course, Mitt Romney, who, along with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, folded in with a Democrat plan for COVID relief that includes re-upping unused dollars from the CARES Act to be used for this latest round of relief. Think about that. During the height of the COVID outbreak, not all of the, for example, payroll protection money that was allocated after the second allocation, at least, was used. But now we're going to send it back out again. The government can't give away free money. That's how good the government is. In addition to state and local and, and, and localities being bailed out, Mitt Romney uh, on the dais. COVID has created a crisis. And in a crisis, the people expect Congress to act. And this group has come together to propose action that could respond to this crisis. We've got people unemployed. We've got businesses shutting down. We've got states and localities getting ready for layoffs of large numbers of people. It's simply unacceptable for us not to respond to help in this circumstance. Romney characterized himself as a deficit hawk. And how do you know he's a deficit hawk? They're only proposing $1 trillion in funny money as opposed to Nancy Pelosi's $2 trillion. That's how you know somebody's a deficit hawk in D.C. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, economist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, starting with uh, the Mitt Romney Democrat compromise COVID relief package, what do you think? My initial takeaway from that is, thank God that Mitt Romney was never president of the United States. (laughs) We dodged a real bullet there. I mean, uh, every day that goes by, I I think that uh, Mitt Romney is just a fraud. I don't even know what the guy stands for. By the way, of all the states that don't need federal assistance right now, Utah, I mean, I was just in Salt Lake a few weeks ago. (laughs) Utah is booming. In fact, that's the reason why we don't need a stimulus is that, you know, half of the states in the country are up and running. They're doing fine. They balance their budget. They're back to your full employment. Gee, what do all those states have in common? Well, they're run by Democrats who shut down their economy. So we don't need another stimulus bill. This is so outrageous that they're talking about another $1 trillion. Well, Pelosi wants 2 to $3 trillion of, of spending. The economy is essentially doing really well right now. The unemployment rate fell to below 7% last month. It's probably going to fall some more when we get the report on Friday. You know what the latest forecast is for the GDP growth in the fourth quarter of this year? 11%. 11% on top of the 33% growth we had in the third quarter. Nobody expected that, by the way. All these whiz kid economists say, oh, we need another stimulus bill. They all thought the unemployment rate today would be, you know, 12 or 13%. We've got it it below 7%. All of these economic geniuses in Washington, they didn't think we'd have an unemployment rate of less than 7% until 2022. So we don't need another economic stimulus bill. What we need, we, we need obviously the vaccine. That is the stimulus. You want a stimulus? Get this vaccine out there so we can get people immunized and we can get the uh, economy rolling again. There is no amount of checks that the federal government can write, and there's no amount of dollar bills that the Federal Reserve Board can print that can make up for the fact that these mayors and governors are shutting down businesses. If businesses aren't flowing and customers aren't coming in the door, you can't make up for that by just having the government write checks. 
Uh, it's interesting. Uh, it seems like uh, perhaps and, and by the way, what uh, Romney and uh, the Democrats proposed yesterday was DOA, according to Mitch McConnell in the Senate. I hope but, so. Did he say it, that? Uh, that's what I, I, I I'm fairly certain I read that from McConnell. OK, yes. I mean, I you know, and I like Mitch McConnell, but I, what I heard him say is maybe this is a good start. We'll we'll take this under consideration. Folks, we don't need another dollar of government. No, spending. no, Mc, McConnell. McConnell wants to do something. You're right about that. And I think he's just sort of. Uh, sort of giving a soft uh, a soft uh, dismissal of what uh, Romney and the Democrats proposed, p- perhaps in part because a quarter of what they proposed is state and local government bailouts. And, exactly. Uh, the big uh, that's that's a problem. By the way, my, my buddy uh, Keith Mulligan at University of Chicago and I have looked at the unemployment you know, insurance, and we estimate that if they do another $300 a week. By, by the way, just to give you guys a sense of how crazy that is, we did $600 additional unemployment benefits, you know, through July, and now the, the kind of compromise is $300 a week extra benefits. Do you know how much? I'll give you a dollar if you can get this one right. Do you know what the extra benefits were in 2009, you know, during the financial crisis? We, we provided additional unemployment benefits. You know what, how much they were? $25. Half of the unemployed workers in America would get more money taking unemployment insurance plus the extra $300 a week than going back on a job. How crazy is that? Well, part of this, I think, too, is this belief that uh, the government can replace the market economy. And so exactly. To- and, and Whole Foods CEO John Mackey has weighed in in a way I wish more Republicans would, uh, characterizing socialism as trickle-up poverty and characterizing capitalism as the greatest thing humanity's ever done. He uh, writes, though, we've been told a bad narrative. We've let the enemies of business and the enemies of capitalism put out a narrative about us that's wrong. From an ethical standpoint, we need to change the narrative of capitalism to show that it's about creating shared value, not for the few, but for everyone. And in point of fact, I go further and say that the command control economy that the other side wants and some Republicans seem amenable to uh, is – is is the opposite of that. That's about shared value for the few at the expense of the everyone. And there's just not enough Republicans making the moral case for capitalism, in my view. So this is a great point. And, and, and it gets to the question, you know, do you care about these people? Oh, yes, I care about the people, uh, you know, the businesses and the workers who can't go to their jobs and can't get a paycheck. And what's really amazing is the, the left puts out all this stuff. Oh, the victims of the of virus are, you know, the lowest income people. They're the people who are suffering the most. Yeah, they are, because whenever you, you suspend capitalism and the free market, who are the first people, Dan, to get laid off? The poor, the minorities, the people who are least skilled, the very people Democrats say they stand for are the ones who are getting clobbered here, as well as the small businesses. I don't know if you saw uh, what came out um, by CNBC. They did a survey of 2,000 small business owners. Do you know what happened to last week to small business confidence? It fell to its lowest level ever since CNBC started doing that survey. And gee, what a shock. That happened two weeks after the election of Joe Biden, because Biden's agenda is very hostile to small business. By the way, it's very friendly to big corporate America. Corporate America gave all their money to the to the Democrats. But the small businesses are the ones who, who get creamed. The, the, the restaurants and the little stores that you're talking about, those are the victims. Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, economist, and author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Have a great week. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the show. Continuing our conversation about uh, COVID-related spending uh, that we started with uh, Wall Street Journal columnist Steve Moore. But uh, from a bit of a different perspective, this is uh, uh, still a problem that we have uh, uh, fake medical supplies uh, that are circulating and criminal enterprises that are trafficking in fake medical supplies because governments are spending so much on things like personal protective equipment. We saw some of this early on in the spring when there, for example, masks were in short supply. And I know in my home state of Illinois, there was uh, orders placed with uh, Chinese concerns to get uh, masks and personal protective equipment. And a lot of the material that actually made its way over from China to Illinois was um, substandard. And uh, it's uh, sort of remarkable, this piece by Christina Ackery, that uh, this is not just persisting, but it's been organized around criminal enterprises. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Christina Ackery. She's an associate professor of economics and chair of the Department of Economics at Business and Business at the Colorado College. Christina Ackery, professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was an interesting piece that you wrote uh, in The Spectator about uh, the billions of dollars that are being made by criminal organizations trafficking in fake medical supplies. And this is against the backdrop of, uh, you know, another $900 billion COVID relief package that was introduced by a group of senators yesterday and still discussions of uh, m- many more trillions that uh, uh, Washington, D.C. politicians want spent. So. In the, uh, the purpose for the purposes of making sure we're getting bang for our marginal tax dollar, this turns out to be really important. What you're describing is occurring uh, the world over. It is, and it's and it's terrifying at a moment when people need to put their faith in medical equipment and vaccines and drugs. We see these these criminal gangs coming in and stealing that that faith and our money and providing goods that that are not not any good that don't work that aren't safe and that are sometimes dangerous. And so give us uh, some examples of this, because you go through the stats of just how big these criminal enterprise, the operations of these criminal enterprises are and, um, and, and, and you know, the potential implications if you get fraudulent COVID test kits or a fraudulent, uh, ineffectual personal protective equipment, particularly if you're right, a frontline healthcare worker. Exactly right. And those are those are items that have been have been counterfeited and have been found not only in the U.S., but the world over. It's it's something that is absolutely stunning. We know that there is approximately three percent of global trade that will be lost to illegal um, counterfeit leakages in 2020. And it's all sorts of things. It's it's PPE. It's hand sanitizer. It's it's drugs. It's vaccines. It's anything that people can put a little faith in that they think is going to help or protect them from from COVID has been counterfeited. And uh, this uh, speaks to an issue that was raised early on in the pandemic, too, which is uh, where America sources its antibiotics, for example, and where America sources its personal protective equipment and what the stockpiles are and the need to reconsider supply chain so that we're not dependent uh, on foreign countries, particularly those that have interests adverse to America, like the Chinese do in so many respects, not dependent on them for this, uh, the, the, the medicines that we need, the protective equipment that we need. 
That's exactly right. It's definitely an issue of redundancy when the supply chains that we rely upon um, become bottlenecked and are unable to provide what we need. There need to be other places where we can go for disinfectants, for disposable latex gloves, for the masks and other PPE that we need. And we need safe sources for, for medicines too. We know that as consumers have embraced social distancing, they've turned to e-commerce and started purchasing the things that they believe that they need and will keep them safe online. And that has opened the door for, for counterfeits. And unfortunately, we know that some of the drugs that are most frequently prescribed to treat COVID are those that are most frequently counterfeited. And you uh, point out in your piece that I referenced that uh, corporate America, too, is acting as a sort of a watchdog, this competitive environment, which is good news. For example, the uh, the company 3M has filed a dozen lawsuits against fake personal protective equipment providers who were uh, f- uh, selling fraudulent N95 masks. So this, again, you know, important not just for healthcare professionals, but also for people who think, well, I'm getting the top of line mask. I'm going to get it fitted and this is going to provide some protection when in point of fact they're they're, uh, you know, getting hornswoggled. You're exactly right. And it's it's sort of adding to the, the burden that, that 3M has that not only are they trying to provide these masks for us, but now they also have to do quality control on the counterfeits that are out there, track them down and file lawsuits against those who are selling the fake products. And, and, and where does the federal government come in? I know there was a Department of Justice looking at uh, sort of, quote unquote, price gouging early in the pandemic when it came to supplies that were more limited than certainly they are now. But uh, this seems to me uh, something where uh, the United States federal government should be intervening on behalf of companies and the American people to ensure that uh, both companies and um, uh, American families are not being defrauded. And they and they are. Um, Customs and Border Patrol is is doing their work tracking down where these goods are coming from, making sure that the goods that enter the the United States are safe and suited to serve the needs that we have. The CDC is working in a similar way, uh, along with other global entities. So there is work being done um, at the federal level here. I think there's there's room for more, especially in terms of proactive proactive efforts to make sure that we have um, multiple supply chains, that we have funding to to keep the supply chains as short as possible, getting them from manufacturer to patient um, without the leakages or or opportunities for, for counterfeiters to sneak into the chain. Well, and here this is a problem, too, in the digital age of so much commerce being conducted online. And so it makes it easy to do commerce with uh, entities outside the country, and it makes it more difficult for authorities to hold enterprises that are outside the corporate boundaries of the United States accountable under the law. That's it. That's exactly right. And we know that the... Entities that have popped up to meet this need, those that are that are online, um, the most recent online pharmacies are virtually all tied to known criminal networks. So they saw this as an opportunity and quickly jumped in uh, to take advantage. Uh, how much uh, does uh, the use of Bitcoin uh, play into this uh, illicit commerce, if you will, even if it's not? even if it's if it's illicit only in one side of the commerce but um the use of bitcoin as transaction is that is that a tell at all because of course one of the arguments with respect to cryptocurrencies is the uh, sort of inability to um uh to 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 
the, the sort of the lack of government oversight, and one wonders if uh, you're seeing suppliers uh, wanting payment in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, if maybe that's a tell. I think it can be a tell. I think that whenever there is a lack of transparency, there's a reason to be suspicious. And Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are definitely something that sort of um, muddies the water a bit um, and should should raise some concerns. Yes. She is Christina Ackery. She's Associate Professor of Economics and Chair of the Department of Economics and Business at the Colorado College. Professor Ackery, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's why I'm easy. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Yeah, this installment of the Campus Beat uh, takes us to Haverford College in Pennsylvania. We'll get there in just a second. But first, Victor Davis Hanson writing about uh, universities, why our universities have failed. His piece at amgreatness.com. By the way, where you can check out uh, my uh, piece on uh, President Trump, if when he is to deliver parting comments, what they should sound like. That's also at amgreatness.com posted today. But uh, not a BDH. Where did Antifa, youth riding in the streets, receive their intellectual and ethical bearings? Why are the First and Second Amendments no longer fully operative? How did the general population become nearly ignorant of their constitution, history, and the hallmarks of their culture? Why do employers no longer equate a bachelor's degree with competency in oral and written communications, basic computation, and reasoning? How in the 21st century did race and ethnicity come to define who we are rather than become incidental to our individual personas? In answering all of these questions, we always seem to return to higher education, the font of much of our contemporary malaise. Indeed, and in point of fact, this calls to mind Andrew Sullivan's formulation from last year, we all live on a college campus now. So it makes sense to continue to go back to the incubator of the malaise, as VDH characterizes it. And he provides some historical context to uh, how we got to this place over, say, the last 50 years from the Vietnam era forward. It's really a good piece. I would recommend it. That brings us, without getting too much into the history, I want to give you an example of where we're at exactly. And I'm not just talking about Sarah Fuller at Vanderbilt, SEC Athlete of the Week. We talked about her yesterday. She is uh, Jackie Robinson and Bear Bryant, Newt Rockney, all wrapped into one, both uh, because of a 30-yard squib kick as well as because of her halftime motivational speech for a Vanderbilt team that lost 41 to nothing to Missouri on Saturday. Well, she was the SEC Athlete of the Week. Now, Alabama quarterback Mac Jones, his stat line against Auburn on Saturday, 18-26 for 302 yards, five touchdowns, no interceptions. But, unfortunately, he had zero squib kicks. So maybe next week for Mac Jones. But anyway, back to where we are now. That's an example of it in part because it speaks to identity politics, identitarianism, gender variety. But Haverford College, there's a piece in Quillette about a certain incident. The particulars of the incident aren't really that interesting. What's interesting is this. 
almost all the students at Haverford identify as liberal. Only 3.5% identify as conservative or very conservative. Barely more than the percentage of people who self-describe as transgender, 3%. So at Haverford College, $60,000 a year, liberal arts college, you know, one of these uh, august universities where the uh, sheepskin supposedly matters is a, is a pass to a better life. Three and a half percent identify as conservative. Three percent identify as transgender, which is also about, uh, I don't know, six or seven times the actual incidence of transgender identification in the larger population. But of course it is. And the story is uh, really interesting. The gist is that the students on campus had some sort of a strike against like systemic racism, except there's nobody to strike against because they're all in the same place. The students, faculty, administration, all tripping over each other to stay out in front. But there's the sentence that's worth reading, and it, it's, uh, it sort of sums up what conservatives misunderstand about the state of the college campus. Conservatives think they're um, making progress by citing the outrageous tuition at schools like this and saying, who the heck would send their kid to Haverford? for 60 grand a year to teach them how to be, you know, woke, to send them to one of these totalitarian re-education camps. But that's what parents are paying for. They want the woke experience. And part of the woke experience is for the school to supply bad guy stand-ins to protest against because what are schools? They're training grounds for your social justice activists once they get out into corporate America. So somebody has to play the bad guy. So who plays the bad guy? The administration. Listen to uh, how this is described. Uh, in the piece in Quillette. When students complained uh, that one person had caused harm with an email, they weren't really speaking up as activists denouncing racism on campus since there doesn't seem to be much of it. But as consumers whose parents paid good money for them to experience the sensation of transgressive social justice heroism, as one student put it, normally the administrators are the perfect target for student transgression. They take the abuse and they're not supposed to push back. That's part of their role. That's what the students expect. Performative role playing at 60 grand a year to get that transgressive social justice heroism experience. Even though we all agree, and even though we all have the same mindset, we still have to go through this protest where my sense of moral rectitude is affirmed by standing up against the bad guys, even though they're just pretend bad guys. And this is essentially preparing me for Antifa in the real world of a Seattle Autonomous Zone or a Portland mayoral campaign or the real world of being a diversity trainer in some HR department in some Fortune 500 company. But isn't that interesting? You think you're scoring a point saying who would pay for this, and in point of fact, that's what they're paying for. Maybe it's not that they don't know. Maybe it's that these parents do know. This is Dan Pat. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. And uh, talking uh, last hour with Dr. Joel Zinberg from Mount Sinai Hospital in in uh, New York. Part of the conversation was about uh, limiting principle. Is there any limiting principle with respect to state action under the auspices of public health? Hmm. Well, uh, we brought you the story earlier in the week of Max Public House in Staten Island. 
and how Max Public House was defying the shutdown orders of Cuomo and de Blasio, keeping the bar open, restaurant open, not charging people for alcohol because their liquor license got pulled. So, hey, you're just having some friends over to my private establishment and uh, offering them complimentary drinks. And if anybody wants to make a contribution to uh, their favorite cause, then wink, wink, nod, nod, you're able to do that. Well, uh, as that became public, Max put a target on their back, of course, and politicians wanted to make an example of them. And so sheriff's police were sent to Max on Tuesday night to shut it down, and they arrested the co-owner of Max, a gentleman named Danny Presti. The uh, natives of Max, a little bit more than a little bit restless, and uh, a state senator representing that area of Staten Island showed up, who also is a former prosecutor, to question the arrest of Presti, as did his attorney, uh, who sort of out of central casting for an incident like this sort of looked like Butterbean, the former boxer, his uh, personal attorney or uh, the, the business's attorney. And here's how that went down. Something sort of you might uh, you might see certainly sounds like something if, if uh, you know. Bada Bing had been uh, had been shut down in an episode of Sopranos. That's sort of how it went. So this order simply says. Quiet. This order simply says. Excuse me. Excuse me. It's, it's not being helpful. This order simply says that they need to cease and desist. Nowhere here is there an arrest warrant, and nowhere here is anything about arresting anyone. So you break the on their private property. So so I'll ask. You don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. My name is Andrew Lanza. I'm the senator who represents this area. I'm a former prosecutor on behalf of my constituents. Thank you, Andy. I would just like to have an answer. Why was he arrested? I was told you would tell me why he was arrested, and now I'm asking for that answer. Transparency. Transparency. Where's the transparency? Why is it authority? Why did I was arrested? You have to give an answer why he was arrested. Why was he arrested? How about that? Yeah, we don't need to take it away. You just took yeah, out like one of our constituents, one of our neighbors, yes. a business owner, in handcuffs. I asked why. You handed this to me. This piece of paper does not authorize your arrest. If there was some other reason why you were arrested, I'd like to know what that is. Can someone answer or no? Who's the senior officer here? Who's the senior officer? From what I understand, he's arrested because he didn't want to leave, and at that point, they leave his business. His own business. At that point, they considered it trespassing, and I believe that's why they arrested I'd like to know why his attorney got three summonses for just being there and being peaceful and respective and calm of all these officers, and every one of these officers can attest to that. And I got three summonses. Anyway, where is he? Where is your client? Where is he? He's on his way to the sheriff's office right now, where, where they assure me, 350 St. Mark's Place, where they assure me they're going to issue him a desk appearance ticket and, and, and release him for criminal trespass because he wouldn't leave his own establishment. Well, the good news is under the Cuomo de Blasio bail reform, he'll probably get an MTA card, uh, 50 bucks on it, maybe a cell phone and uh uh, I don't know, a sandwich on his way out the door uh, when he uh, is released on his own recognizance pending a court hearing. Isn't that the way you do it? And, and 
so of course we're in the same place we were in the spring where and then throughout the summer as it played out where you can destroy somebody's property you can loot somebody's business no arrests no charges but if you try to operate your business you get arrested for criminal trespass under lockdown orders hmm again the question of the limiting principle of executive authority uh, the Supreme Court weighed in on at least on somewhat of a limiting principle of executive authority. Cuomo is when it comes to places of worship. But what, what about when it comes to commercial operations, people that are trying to make a living, people who are not just going to stand by and let politicians take their lively, livelihoods away? It's interesting because this is not happening in every state. And... Um, Ultimately, it will be borne out by migratory patterns and remapping and census data and so forth. But for now, it's just worth noting uh, the two Americas that we're becoming, the lockdown states and the free states. So at the same time, this has been happening in New York. Oh, and by the way, uh, interestingly, pushback against de Blasio from parents, too, that forced, as we talked about with Zinberg, a 180 by de Blasio with respect to reopening New York City public schools. There was no new information, no new data. It was a straight reversal based on pressure. Well, the pressure perhaps brought to bear by uh, that state senator in Staten Island. Maybe we'll have some people reconsidering arresting otherwise law-abiding business owners. Maybe we'll have some sheriff's police reconsidering the Nuremberg defense for things they don't otherwise want to do. In Florida, Governor DeSantis this week, as all this was happening in New York, said, uh, we're not doing what those other states are doing under pressure from the press in Florida to say, you know, why don't you behave like a blue state governor? He said, no lockdowns, no fines, no school closures. No one's losing their job because of a government dictate. Nobody's losing their livelihood or business. It's totally off the table, he said, in an appearance at an elementary school. He uh, added that I'm opposed to mandates, period. I don't think they work. And for those who do, how has that worked out in states that have done it, lockdown? How has that stopped an outbreak in Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan? What about New Jersey? What about all the states where you have an explosion of cases? People in Florida wear them, masks, when they go out. They don't have to be strung up by a bayonet to do it. Finding people is, I think, totally overboard. How about arresting them for operating their business? DeSantis asks, why are states having to lock down two or three times then if lockdowns are so effective? Why indeed? This is Dan Bob. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show from uh, P.J. Woodhouse and, and his uh, offering, My Man Jeeves. There's no surer foundation for a beautiful friendship than a mutual taste in literature, and she's got brains enough for two, which is exact 
the exact quantity of the girl who marries you will need. I sort of messed that up a little bit, but uh, P.J. Woodhouse comes to mind because he was invoked by our friend Lance Morrow in a piece in the Wall Street Journal about the death of humor in uh, 2020 America, and there's no question about that. Uh, it was uh, on life support before COVID-19, and uh, uh, he's suggesting that it's at last rights at this point after nine months of COVID. He, it's funny that he, he uh, I didn't really think about it until Morrow started to write about it, but have you heard any good COVID jokes? I've heard a few COVID jokes, sort of of the dad humor type, you know, ran out of toilet paper and started using lettuce leaves. Today was just the tip of the iceberg. Tomorrow remains to be seen. hi that sort of thing. Not really funny. I said good COVID jokes. Not really. Um, Moro uh, writes that even before the masks and the shutdowns, America, American humor had been suppressed by the totalitarian taboos. Political correctness and cancel culture have woven entire new value systems around a thousand grievances, inflating them with self-importance to produce an intensely intolerant and humorless new political culture. Right. And uh, as he notes, laughter is the first casualty of ideology, and here we are. The white woke, incapable of humor. All ideologues are asses. In the right-wing neighborhoods, Tucker Carlson's Mary Howells of derision may be as good as the humor gets. As Fox News colleague Sean Hannity, to say the least, not a comedian. And Mark Levin is as grim as Robespierre with a toothache. That is grim. <laughs> he suggests that uh, <laughs> you have to be able to laugh at yourself and even those you like in the political realm, the radio talker realm, in addition. He suggests as more, everyone should watch Henny Youngman videos for 10 minutes a day. Take my wife, please. Uh, it'd be a start, and those who can't stand Youngman should read P.J. Woodhouse, which is why I brought in Roothouse. I would also add Ambrose Bierce. I would add, I mean, especially if you want a little bit tinged with politics, H.L. Mencken, P.J. O'Rourke, a contemporary. Yeah. Humorlessness has become a national comorbidity, writes Lance Morrow. And, it's, you know, I'm glad he wrote it, too, because it is easy to get sort of in, ensconced in the drear and the dread and the drudgery of combating these humorless totalitarian goons that Morrow is referencing. Uh, and so, yes, maybe, I, you know what, I am going to read. Uh, I'm going to go back and read... Uh, the uh, Code of the Worcesters or something from Woodhouse and maybe some Mankin too, and I'll try to be a little bit happier and more jovial tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again for the happier, more jovial Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show.